We have a lot to unpack today. Uh, I'm not going to promise you a short sermon. Um, and part of the reason is because this is a very difficult, difficult text. Uh, we are in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, which is known as the Olivet Discourse. Um, we are going to look at verses 1 through 3 today, uh, but I thought it would be prudent for us to read through the whole chapter first so we can kind of get a feel for everything that's going on um, with this text. And so let's, let's read Matthew 24, verses 1 to the end of it, I guess. Um, all right, it's on page 1538 of your few Bibles, if you're, if you're looking for it. <clears throat> Matthew 24. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to his buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of birth pains. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible." See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the desert, do not go out. Or here he is in the, in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. 
The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of, of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it, is, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know of what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants of his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thus ends our reading of God's authoritative word. May all who, who hear it understand the age in which they live. The date was May 21st, 2011. The time was 6 p.m. The place was Times Square, New York City. And the man was Robert Fitzpatrick. Just minutes earlier, Robert was filled with expectation and great hope. But now he felt both confused and disappointed. You see, Robert had, had quit his job and had spent his life, life savings to finance a massive ad campaign declaring that the end of the world would arrive on that precise date at that precise moment. But why did he think that? Because he followed the teaching of a man named Harold Camping, a man who had claimed to have deduced from the scriptures the exact time of the rapture in Christ's return. 
But that time had now passed, and Robert Fitzpatrick was left with nothing. This tale is a sad one, to say the least. And the reason that this story is so sad is because it didn't have to happen. In fact, the only reason that it did happen was because of a bad eschatology. What is eschatology, you ask? It is the study of last things, the study of the end times. And here's what you need to understand. We have reached a passage of Scripture that can be dangerous. And it can be dangerous because it has been used, or rather it has been abused, by false teachers throughout the years. They've used it to start cults and to destroy people's lives. Think of Joseph Smith and the Mormons. Think of William Miller and the Millerites. Think of Charles T. Russell and the Jehovah's Witnesses. Consider Jim Jones and and drinking the Kool-Aid. Or how about David Koresh and the Branch Davidians and what happened down in Waco, Texas. These were all cults with bad eschatology. They had misused the words of Jesus and ended up destroying both the faith and the lives of many. But it's not only the the, the cult, cult leaders that will use this particular section of Scripture for their own gain. No. For we, we, we see that this has also been used by atheists. How so, you may ask? Well, many of them argue today that Jesus was a false prophet. And they base it on this, this section of Scripture. For the, they say that Jesus predicted his return to be in the first century, and that didn't happen. And I would contend that the, the reason they can do this is because the majority of the Christian world has been suckered into a bad eschatology and thus, has been, and thus has misinterpreted this passage. And in so doing, they have given the atheists the ammunition that they need. But this passage is also dangerous because it has been used by charlatans to make a profit. P-R-O-F-I-T. How many millions of books have been sold because of a bad eschatology? Think of Hale Lindsey and his best-selling book, The Late Great Planet Earth. Anybody ever read that one? There's a few of you out there. Or how about Edgar Wisenant's 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 88, which, by the way, sold four and a half million copies. And did you know that Edgar had a follow-up to that book in 1989? The Final Shout, Rapture Report, 1989. And the only reason he could get away with a second book deal is because the modern Christian world has bought into a bad eschatology. I remember when I was a kid, people were saying that the Antichrist was either George Bush or Mikhail Gorbachev. Anybody else hear that? And Bush, because he was pushing a new world order, and Gorbachev, because he had that that mark on his head, right? But conspiracies like this, they, they always seem to flourish in the moment, do they not? I mean, a year ago, there were many people who thought the Antichrist was Donald Trump. And now today, they think it's Joe Biden. 
And the reason people make these claims is because of a bad eschatology. And, and lo and behold, as if on cue, earlier this week, I received a brochure on my desk claiming that, that the vaccine was the mark of the beast. That what the government was, is really doing is, is inserting these tracking devices underneath people's skin. Again, claims like these are, are only made because of a bad eschatology. And, and this is the danger that I would like us to avoid as we look at these verses. For if, if we have a bad eschatology, if we try to read that into the text, then we're going to fall short of what Jesus is trying to communicate to us. So the question is, how then do we want to approach this text? How do we avoid a bad interpretation? Well, the first thing we must be willing to do is to let go of any traditions that we hold dear, any bad eschatology that, that doesn't agree with what we are about to read. This is a question of attitude. Am I willing to admit that I might be wrong on this passage of Scripture? And this goes for me as well. Take what I say and test it against God's Word. Listen, my theology on this subject, my eschatology, ha has changed over the years. And I don't claim to have all the answers. There are, there are still many things that elude me. But I do believe that, that where I'm at now is a lot closer to the truth than where I was, say, 15 years ago. And the reason I think that is because I have learned to let go of my traditions, of my bad eschatology, particularly when it doesn't match up with what God's Word says. The next thing we need to learn is we need to learn to let the Bible interpret itself. What do I mean by this? Well, there are a few different things. For one, we need to be able to take Jesus at His Word. For instance, when he says in verse 34 that this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened, we should believe him. We shouldn't try to change the meaning of the word this or the word generation, so that, which so many have tried to do. Instead, we should just let those words stand as is. We should trust that Jesus was correct. Also, we should ask questions about the text. Like, who is Jesus speaking to? How would have that audience have understood his words? What type of language is Jesus using? Was it straightforward speech? Or was he using symbolism and hyperbole? We should also ask if, if Jesus was quoting the Old Testament. And if so, why was he doing it? And finally, and, and probably most importantly, we should ask the question, questions concerning the context of this sermon. For example, what was going on before chapter 24? What do we know about chapters 20 through 23? Or how about after? What do we read about in the following chapters? And what about the greater context? How does this text fit into the whole of Matthew's gospel? How, how does it tie into Matthew's overarching theme, which is the kingdom of heaven, where Jesus is king? Or what about the context of the whole of Scripture? 
How does this Olivet Discourse fit into the grand meta-narrative of the Bible? Look, I, I know this is a lot, but, but these are the things that we need to consider as we approach this text. And so with that being said, let's, let's remind ourselves of where we are at in Matthew's Gospel. What was going on before our scene today? If, if you recall, Jesus had just finished his last public sermon. And he did so by making scathing, scathing remarks about the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And he had instructed his followers to be wary of them, as they only do what they do in order to be seen by men. And then Jesus addressed those false teachers directly. He pronounced upon them seven woes, woes of condemnation. And at the heart of those woes was the fact that they had missed the thrust of God's word. They had misread the Old Testament text. And thus they couldn't see God's Messiah, even though he was standing right there, right in front of them. And so Jesus declared his judgment upon them, which would be an eternity in hell if they refused to repent. And yet we saw that Christ would be patient with them as well, giving them a generation to turn back to him. He would send them prophets and wise men and teachers in an effort to rescue as many as possible. And he would send these men, not just to the religious leaders, but to all of the Jews, because he loves his people. And finally, Jesus finished his last public sermon with this lament. Look at, look at Matthew 23, verses 36 through 39. I tell you the truth. All this will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house has left you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus wept over this city that he loved because he knew that they would reject him and crucify him. And that upon them, upon that generation, would come the judgment of God. Their temple, their house of the Lord would be left to them desolate. It would be empty and without protection. For Jesus would not return until they called upon his name. And this is what sets up our passage for today. So let's keep that in mind as we look at, at Matthew 24. Let's look at verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. I remember my first time visiting New York City. My mom took me to, to Times Square and uh, Central Park. But what I found most amazing about that place was, was how it was jam-packed with, with skyscrapers. And each one seemed to be taller than any building we have here in Grand Rapids. They were just stacked one against another. Simply put, I, I found it breathtaking. Breathtaking at what man can accomplish. 
And, and, and I believe that this is what the disciples must have felt as they were taking in the temple from a distance. You see, the, the, the temple that Herod had built was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the world. It was this massive structure made of enormous white stones. And during, and during the right time of day, the, the sun would just gleam off of those stones, making the mountain seem that, that, that it had a shining star resting on top of it. A person could see it from miles away. I wonder if that was what Jesus was thinking about when he, when he said these words in Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. These disciples, these men from simple Galilee, they were taking in the marvels of Jerusalem and everything that man had accomplished. They were in awe of the temple and what it meant. But Christ had some words for them. Look at verse 2. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Remember the context of this setting. And Jesus' lament upon Jerusalem. How the temple would be left desolate and how he would not return until they acknowledged him. And yet all the disciples were thinking about was how wonderful, how grand that temple looked. Jesus had to once again refocus their gaze away from the works of men so that they might be able to see what God is actually doing. These disciples, they were stuck in their, in their old covenant thinking where they needed to rely on that temple, to rely on, on animal sacrifices. They couldn't imagine a world that would not have that temple in it. But Jesus was introducing a new covenant, one that would do away with a system that had become corrupt and obsolete. Corrupt in that, it, that the temple had become a den of robbers. And obsolete in the fact that very, very soon, the spotless Lamb of God would become the sole sacrifice that would cover over the sins of the world. There would no longer be any need for any more animal sacrifices. No longer a need for the temple. And that is why Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. While the disciples were marveling at the, the very building that represented the old covenant, Christ was ready to tear the whole thing down, tear it to the ground, because it had become corrupt and obsolete. Which leads us to the question that, that we see in our next verse, the questions that these disciples will have. Look at verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? It is here. It is in this verse that both a bad eschatology and a faulty interpretation can start to lead us astray. First, let's address the faulty interpretation. 
For I believe that much of our problems today stem from a single mistranslated word. And that word is ionos. If you're holding in your hands a a King James Bible, you probably noticed that the last word in verse 3 was different for you. It doesn't say the end of the age, but the end of the world. So which is it? Are we talking about the end of the age or about the end of the world? In the Greek, there is a particular word that is used throughout the New Testament to talk about the world. And that word is cosmos. It is the word that we find in in a verse that probably each and every one of you has memorized. John 3.16. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the cosmos. And cosmos has has the meaning that you would expect. It, It can mean the physical world. It can mean the universe. It can even represent the inhabitants of that physical world. But cosmos isn't the word we find in Matthew 24. No. Rather, we find ionos, which stems from the Greek word ion. And ion has a a whole different meaning. It means a a space of time or a cycle of time, an age. Now, no offense to the King James Bible, for I think it is a fine translation. But in this instance, they got it wrong. And because they got it wrong, and because the King James had been the predominant English translation for centuries, it has produced countless numbers of bad eschatologies. For when you think that Jesus is talking about the end of the world and not the end of an age, then you're going to read into that text a futuristic view. I mean, how could you not, since the world has yet to end? But when we translate it correctly and see that the disciples were asking about the end of the age and not the end of the world, and when we think about the context in which Jesus had just said, which he had just spoke about his prophecy concerning the destruction of the temple, then we begin to understand that that these disciples were not thinking about the end of space and time, but of of the passing of an era and the beginning of a new one. And this is what we see when we read the rest of the New Testament. These first century Christians thought that they were living at the end of the age. For example, look at Hebrews 1, verse 2. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. When did this author think that God spoke to us through his Son? In these last days. Or how about later in Hebrews? Look at Hebrews 9, verse 26. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. When did the author think that Christ died on the cross for us? At the end of the ages. But that's just one author. What about the rest? What about Jesus' right-hand man? What did, what did Peter think? Look at, look at 1 Peter 1, verse 20. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. 
Peter thought that Jesus was revealed in these last times. How about Paul? Paul wrote half the New Testament. What about him? Look what he says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. Here he's speaking of Israel's history. And this is what it says. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. When did Paul and these first century Christians think they were living? In the fulfillment of the ages. So with this in mind, let's consider the question of the disciples once more. Look again at Matthew 24, verse 3. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now what we have here is really two questions. When and what? When will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So the disciples wanted to know a date, and they wanted to know the sign that they should be looking for, warning them to steer clear of Jerusalem. Now this first question, the when, is easy enough for us to understand, am I right? They, they were hoping that Jesus would give them some, time, some kind of time frame. Is this going to happen tomorrow, Jesus, or is this years down the road? But it is the second question, the what, that, that brings us such great confusion. For we have a tendency to, to read this question with, with, with 21st century glasses. Glasses that, that, that know of Jesus' death, of his resurrection, and of his ascension into heaven. And so, when we see this word coming, what do we actually think of? We think about Jesus' second coming, do we not? And that's what comes to mind. And this is why context is so important. For, for we are not the ones who are, who are asking that question. Rather, it was Christ's disciples before Jesus even went to the cross. These were the same men who were just days before arguing over who would be the greatest. In the kingdom of heaven. Even after Jesus had told them that he was going to be crucified. They just didn't get it. These were confused disciples who had yet to put all the pieces together. They didn't understand that Jesus was about to die. Or that he would be risen from the dead. Or that he would ascend into heaven. Even though Jesus had warned them three times. And so they had no conception about a second coming. How could they? I mean, Jesus was standing right there in front of them, alive and well. But if this word coming isn't about Jesus' second coming, then, then what were they asking? What might help us to understand is to look at the parallel passages in both Mark and Luke. Look, look, at, look at Mark 13, verse 4. Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled. Or look at Luke 21, verse 7. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? Notice the difference? Only, only Matthew includes the part about Jesus' coming and about the end of the age. And the question we must ask is why? 
Why does Mark and Luke leave that part out, and why does Matthew include it? Certainly, if this was about Christ's second coming, these other two gospel writers would have included it, would they have not? It seems like it would have been too important of a fact to leave out. Part of the answer has to do with their audience, to whom they were speaking to. Matthew was writing to mainly a Jewish Christian audience, an audience who knew their Old Testament well. And so this phraseology of coming would have been easily understood by those who grew up hearing the Torah read week in and week out. But Mark and and particularly Luke were writing to a more Gentile audience. And so talking about Jesus' coming would have been confusing. And so instead they simply referred back to what what that coming points to, which is the destruction of Jerusalem, a localized judgment. But we, we're blessed to be reading Matthew. And so let's try to get a handle on this word coming and how it is defined by Old Testament standards. Now coming was a a word that the scriptures used to describe a king, particularly the Messiah, taking his throne. It was a ruler assuming his authority over a nation. And in the context of the Messiah, coming was a word that meant salvation to those who were God's chosen people and judgment to those who were God's enemies. For example, look at at Micah 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Or how about Daniel 7, verse 13? In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And then listen to this. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This word coming was understood by these disciples in this context. Not a second coming, but a coming in the sense that that the Messiah would be taking his throne, bringing his rule as the king of this earth. And if you think about it, That fits into the whole theme of Matthew's gospel. Christ establishing his kingdom. For some, this meant deliverance. For others, this meant judgment. So when Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another, these men interpreted that as meaning the coming of the king of glory in judgment. And this fits in perfectly with the other thing that they said, the end of the age. For in the Old Testament, this coming Messiah, this King of Kings would also be introducing a new covenant, declaring an end to the old. This is what we read in our first scripture reading. Look at at Jeremiah 31 again. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, 
because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This expectation of this Messiah was an expectation that he was going to usher in a new kingdom that would be built upon a new covenant. And this is what the disciples had in mind when they were asking Jesus this question. The context is Jesus' prophecy concerning the the destruction of the temple. And the disciples saw this cataclysmic event as Jesus taking his throne and putting an end to an old age, the age of the old covenant, that he would be bringing forth a new age with a new covenant. And so when we we read this text and we remove our 21st century glasses, what we discover is that this is not about the end of the world but about the ushering in of the King of Kings and the new covenant that he would establish for his people. The old covenant would be done away with and the new covenant would be inaugurated. Lastly, and I don't want you to miss the symbolism here of Jesus leaving the temple and going to the Mount of Olives. For, for it is a reflection of something else that we find in the, in the Old Testament. Before the fall of the, the first temple, Solomon's temple, before the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem, the prophet Ezekiel was shown a vision of the glory of the Lord leaving Jerusalem. Look at it, Ezekiel 11, verse 23. The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. What is this mountain east of the city? It is none other than the Mount of Olives. Think about that. Some 600 years before Christ, Yahweh removed his glory from Solomon's temple and then rested upon the Mount of Olives. And it wasn't long after that that the Babylonians came and tore that temple to the ground. And now here in the book of Matthew, we see a repeat of the same thing. God incarnate now standing in Herod's temple. And he had declared to the people, your house is left to you desolate. It is abandoned. It is unprotected. And then, and then he said that they would not see him again until they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And as he walked away, he then prophesied that temple's destruction. And then he departed to the east and rested upon the Mount of Olives. And within a generation, that temple would be torn down once again. Only this time, it would be the Romans. Dear friends, do you see how this all fits together? That when you you let the text speak for itself, things get clearer. They get simpler. But 
But you may be saying to yourself, well, that's great, Pastor, but so what? <laughs> what, what does this mean for us? If this is only about events that happened long ago, then why do we care about it today? What is a prophecy given 2,000 years ago and was fulfilled within a generation? What does that have to do with 21st century Christians? Everything. Think about it. That temple was torn to the ground 1,950 years ago, and it has stayed torn down ever since. And praise God that it has, for it represents a covenant that we could not fulfill. It represents a system that enslaves. Think of Paul's letter to the Galatians. What was that all about? It was about a church that wanted to go back to the old covenant. Back to the law and the, and the practices that are now defunct. And Paul's warning to them was that, that to go back was tantamount to a rejection of the gospel. And then look at what he said in chapter 4, verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. The son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. These things may be taken figuratively, for the women re represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem's still standing when Paul wrote this. Because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. But you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Dear friends, this is our heritage. We are a new covenant people, a people who have been freed. It is because of Jesus that we, we no longer have to travel to Jerusalem looking for forgiveness. It is because of Jesus that we no longer have to slaughter our animals. For we have a better sacrifice than the blood of bulls and goats. A sacrifice whose blood washes away all our sins, leaving us cleansed and justified. And we have a better high priest, one who is eternal, one who is seated in the heavenly temple, the Jerusalem from above, that city that cannot be shaken. And this high priest is interceding for us at this very moment. Think about that. 
We are a children of promise, born by the power of the Spirit. And because of that, we are free. Brothers, sisters, let us rejoice that the temple is gone. Let us rejoice that we are under a new covenant. And let us rejoice that our Lord came in judgment and brought about the end of the age. Let us pray. Father, we are a grateful, grateful people because of what your son has done for us. He has freed us from from a covenant that we could not keep and has brought us into a new covenant where we find forgiveness and mercy. He is our true sacrifice, the sacrifice that takes away all our sins. And for that, we worship and honor him. We ask now that you would help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to walk in the freedom that was purchased at the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.